This week on Emerge Mobile First, a conversation with Christopher Rader, brand evangelist for Luxottica. It's just another vehicle. So mobile, for example, to me, is a vehicle that can or cannot be useful. It's all depending on what you fill it with and how you utilize it to strengthen your uh, communication or dialogue. Welcome to Mobile First. You'll find bonus tools, expanded information, and key takeaways on our website, EmergeMobileFirst.com. For a quick and effective way to level up your mobile strategy, again, that's EmergeMobileFirst.com. In this episode, we explore brand strategy with our guest, Christopher Rader. You'll hear about how he mends brands that have lost their purpose, and he gives detailed examples on how he focuses on certain branding opportunities. We're going to also take a closer look at how to create a sub-brand without the risk of fragmentation. Christopher Rader is a brand evangelist with a solid expertise in visual design. He's a multidisciplinary brand strategist with an international experience in content development for consumer experiences and brand positioning. He's designed for brands like Ikea, H&M, Brooks Brothers, Lagos, Luxottica, Bloomingdale's, David Yerman, Bjorn Borg, and Oakley, just to name a few. Christopher, thanks for joining us. I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you. Likewise. It's great to be here. And you know, in our conversation before this, you had mentioned you traveled a lot with your father in Europe, and he took you to a lot of different places to look at architecture. And I'm curious how that and your upbringing has relayed to now how you focus in your profession. So anybody that grows up with creative parents or parents, no, not creative parents, parents that has an obsession. If you grew up with a parent that have an obsession, you know that no matter what they try to do to make something or create something for all of you, it's always going to be very targeted to the specific uh, interest they have. My father's fascination of uh, medieval churches became a roadmap for how we planned our trips through Europe. But and back in the day, being 12, 13, 14 years old, it was probably the most boring thing you can do after washing paint dry on a wall. So it's, it was so hard. But now when I look back at it and say, okay, these people built these churches five, six, seven, eight hundred years ago. They had a under- fundamental understanding of construction and still could build things that were beautiful. And also the thing that loves me most is that churches have the best acoustics ever. We today struggle with creating the same ability to create an acoustic environment like they did 800 years ago. What do you think that is? Back in the day, you were taught by older, elderly, right? So if you wanted to be a good mechanic, if you wanted to be a good welder, if you want to be a good craftsman in any topic, you had to learn by somebody else. So you went through these X amount of years where you literally have to just follow what the other person said. So it humbles you, it gives you perspective, you learn from their mistakes before you make your own, and it's a slow process to become a master in something. Mm-hmm. And I think today we have transitioned into an environment where I think that if I follow four yoga yogis on Instagram, I will learn to do handstand within three weeks. We, we totally lost the ability to learn from an older generation and let it take time to learn something. So you're, you're thinking that in the 
in this time, that's where these nuances come out. And without, and by trying to bypass that, expedite that learning process, we're learn, we're losing some of these nuances that lead to just a better product, a better experience. Yeah. When I started working in retail, which I did, I started working for brands. My ambition was to work with five large brands and then transition into an agency setting and in an agency environment. Because then I have worked for five of the multi-international brands and I knew more than anybody else. I would be a good asset for that agency, I thought. So I was willingly taking those, whatever time that required to work for these brands before I move into the, what actually would be my dream job to be my own agency or work for an agency that shared the same values as I did. Interesting. So your understanding of how people learn has, that's what's kind of driven your approach as far as your career path and wanting to start with the brands to get an understanding of these larger brands and then have that learning into a different way to apply it in the agency side. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Because retail is not about pushing product. Retail or consumer brands, or any brand for that matter that has a product, is about relationship and understanding people. And so I think that's a good segue into your focus as a brand experience advisor. You know, What are these things that you're focusing on? What's your style? How do you approach uh, brand experience? I try to go after brands that wants to, want to change. So Because I think this role is as much of an agent of change as it is... Uh, uh, advising them to do the right thing, right? So you kind of have to push and pull. Can you give us an example of one that wants to and one that doesn't, just for reference? Oh, yeah. Uh, Brooks Brothers. Um, lovely brand. Put uh, 200 years old in uh, 2018. So they've done their thing. They know what works. And they had tried really hard to adapt to change. But all of a sudden, they, they realized that it wasn't the right way. So now they're going completely backwards. And that's why I also a little bit left them. I met the, the, CEO, the owner, Mr. Claudio Del Vecchio, last week. I had a coffee. We talked about it. Like, how's business today and what's going on? And it's, it's that, that fear of change and standing in front of it. That was the, probably going to be the problem that kills Brooks Brothers at the end of the day. So they're an example of, of a brand that's maybe it's, it's hard to want to change. Have you worked with a brand? Which, which of the brands have you worked with that you felt like they really want to change? And that's why they're making a lot of effort to change. I say that my first job with Ikea and my longest career with that brand was probably the best expre- expression or experience of change. Because that company, when I started, they had the ambition to grow 10 times the size in 10 years. And that became the fundamental principle for everything they decided to do for the next 10 years. So in 10 more countries, 10 more stores in every existing country, the business should grow 10 times what it was today. And they succeeded because the whole organization was built fundamentally of understanding needs and meaning you need to adapt and evolve constantly. Gotcha. So number one is want to change. And sorry, I cut you off for examples. Is So want to change is number one. And then how else do you view... Uh, brand experience what are those other components to it understand who you are and i i think most brands struggle with that like i work with oakley right now in the transition of being more uh integrated with luxotica and this is a brand that has oakley had their heydays in what late 80s early 90s maybe and it feels like you remember that movie back to the future with yeah. michael fox it felt like that you walked back into a time in the, the office where nobody have left that office in the last 15 years. They had no idea who the consumer was. They had no idea 
who they talked to and who wanted to listen. So they lost their reason to exist. So they lost their focus to why they're producing product. And I think that was really uh, hard to see because they, they weren't aware of it yet. That's what I want to focus on. Gotcha. So they have to want to change. They have to know who they are, you know, the why, the purpose. And then is, is then do you take this and then do you then get into the how? Or are there more, are there some other things that you consider along the way? So let's say we work with a brand that has a, um, every, every brand more or less sell a product, right? So if you work with a brand that lost their soul a little bit or lost their purpose like Oakley, then you have to go all the way back to the product. So I try to work together with the product development team on one side and the marketing or the visual team on the other side, the retail team on the other side. That way, I can go back and listen to why on earth did we make these eyewear, these goggles or these jackets? What was the purpose? What was the design brief? Like what was literally the brief that you were given as a designer before you made the jacket? And then we make that as the foundation for the storytelling in retail. So you have to take point A and point B and make the distance as short as possible. And that, that I think, where it has been my strongest working point and where I touch most brands is just to help them connect those two dots, A and B. Maybe give an example of where you've made this connection with like a specific product or you know story that you created a product from or vice versa. So Oakley made an eyewear frame named Holbrook. Holbrook was made with Sean White in the Olympics in, what was it, 93? Uh, something like that. In mid-90s, they made this frame with him. So it was a little bit before he got really cool. And, uh, but then he was already a good athlete at that time. So we made, um, they made in a campaign back in the day. And of course, that campaign has now been archived and lost and forgotten, all that stuff. But Oakley is still producing about 35 different colorways of these Holbrook eyewear. And it's the second largest selling eyewear frame in Oakley's assortment. But of course, they, to Oakley, it was an old product. So I just went back and I took the old campaign. We reworked them a little bit. We utilized them into the retail environment as a strong storytelling point. And we presented Holbrook as a separate little outpost in the store environment. And we have been ticking a 30, 35% increase nonstop since we did that. Because the consumer wanted the product. It was just that the brand forgot that how good of a product it was. Because to them, it was old news. Gotcha. So you, you took it and you broke it out away and made it more of a focus point and it almost like its own entity with its own story and put it on display. Yeah, because what is the point with uh, selling a product that has a name? The, the product that has a name like Holbrook or Frogskin are two big frames for Oakley or Jawbreaker is another one that's very famous. Horribly ugly, but everybody knows it. Like the, These three are sub-brands to the brand. Just like IKEA has the collection Malm, the, the chest of drawers for bedrooms and whatnot. This is a sub-brand in itself. And as a, a global brand, you need to let these sub-brands have an, have an identity. I'm just going to ask, at what point does, are you able to have a sub-brand you know, and don't create fragmentation? Is there a specific point in you know, being able to be a brand that can have sub-brands in the like, business lifecycle process? You can do that as soon as you want to. It has nothing to do with your longevity as a brand when you can start looking at your product as standing on their legs themselves. 
It's the same way of saying it, just because me as a dad have two daughters and they are sort of brands in by themselves. I lost my identity. I, I didn't. I became somebody else. And I think as a brand, you're very similar in that matter, that when you are a brand and you're big enough in your personality to say that these five products are my iconic products, I'm going to name them, market them, and make them something bigger than they are, then you are growing as a brand by doing so. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm I'm curious about just like the fragmentation. Like what if, you know, a sub-brand becomes, outperforms the whole brand (laughs) or as far as like in public perception? You're 100% right. Madewell and J. Crew. Look at J. Crew. J. Crew has $2 billion in debt and they make $49 million this year and because they're doing that bad poorly. Madewell, on the other hand, they have 375 stores, J. Crew, or something like that, 300 plus. Uh, Madewell has less than 100 stores and they're purely profitable. Mm. And the problem was that now, or Ann Taylor Loft uh, almost cannibalized Ann Taylor. Well, it, what, the point, to, I think, is that it, when you do let a sub-brand grow very strong, you need to look at why it grew strong, and then you need to take that knowledge back to your, your foundation, your brand. Because what is it that made, made well so successful versus J. Crew? It's a, literally the same product with a different tag on it. So the storytelling was better in, in made well than J. Crew. So the consumer connected better to it. In those instances where you know these sub brands take off, are are you noticing that there are their own teams that are doing that, and it's almost like a company siloed within a company, or is it something where there's shared assets, shared resources, or how? In your experience, what have you seen be successful? Some of them do it differently. The most successful is if you let the brand, the sub brand, grow, have a project group. If you treat it as a separate little project that they have ownership and autonomy and they can create something on their own, you get the best bang for the buck. If you try to take the same old team that's now a little bit run down and worn down and everybody has defined role and ask them to do something completely different and new, you're never going to be really all that successful. IKEA launched a collection way back called PS. And that PS collection was done in, collabora- done in collaboration with external designers. And they made an office in the town close to the headquarter where they sat and worked on this solely all by themselves. And I think you really need to have respect for the process and do that if you want that sub-brand to be successful. And have you noticed just in, you know, just in the industry where companies are struggling with this and why or companies that are doing this really well? I think Nike Jordan brand has been very successful in it. Mm-hmm. I'm impressed by how they are taking Air Max and Dan Smith and a couple of other product collections and making them important in a similar manner that they did with Jordan. I think that we start seeing a success by how they treat them. So as a brand experience advisor, is this one of the main things that you see or is this just like a subset of kind of like a bigger problem that you notice when coming in to advise? It's a big part of a bigger problem. This is one way of being successful, but it's temporary. It's like okay, you you get um, uh, antibiotics when you have a cold to fix it. Like you, that's kind of what you can you can build some brands to save some of the get the attention back. But in lo- the longevity in a brand, it doesn't that won't help you. You you have to go back and say okay, what what is it? why are we creating product? What's the purpose of the product? And what do we want to tell the consumer? Like, what is the content of our dialogue? Like, those are the core things that you as a brand need to develop. Gotcha. So it's more of this is like the short-term strategy. Let's come in. Let's see what's working. Let's put what's working on display. Let's get things organized in a way that aligns with the consumer behavior and want. 
And then from there, it's once you have that kind of all the ducks in a row of the current ducks that you have, now let's think of the future. Let's think of where this is going. Let's really look into the data, look into what is working, and let's let's use that for the future strategy. And this is where a brand, I find a lot of brands to be extremely stupid, and it bothers me. (laughs) Because uh, Ikea, take this for example, and this might be not the most common knowledge. So Ikea is in the foundation, Ikea is a corporation of 500 brands, where their foundational brand is a bank. And that bank is an um, investor. So the, for example, when they're going to open a new store, they have this uh, bank that buys land across the world. And that could be 10, 20 years down the road. Like they have owned real estate in Las Vegas for since the early 80s and never done anything with it. They own it because that's an investment for them. So they buy land and the land pot where they're going to build the store might be 50 times the size of the store, right? So then they rent out the land to Bed Bath & Beyond, Linus & Thing, Home Depot, blah, blah, blah. All the brands that you define to be competitors to IKEA, they rent that out to it. Then they build their store somewhere in that pot of land. And within two years, they paid off the $150 million investment it cost to build that house because of the rent they get from the rest of the land. So look at IKEA. We think IKEA is a home furnishing company, but IKEA in the real, is really a real estate company that also have a home furnishing company within it. Interesting. So it's a portfolio brand, right? Right. Yeah. Oakley is selling eyewear. Okay. But no, Oakley is a technology company because Oakley are developing the lens technology to a level that nobody else does. And nobody wants to talk about that Oakley is literally building half of their product. Oakley building are for the military. So they sit on technology that they are developing for the military, just waiting until they can launch it to the average consumer. Phenom- they pr- should promote themselves as a technology company. And we also sell eyewear. Or we utilize our technology to, to sell eyewear, lens technology. So like, that's how I look at a brand. Like, what is, what are, what's your real purpose? What, what are you really trying to do here? And what are you really good at? And why don't we talk about that first? So no, you've been doing this for, for a while. And you have a very good sense of, of how they can leverage their really who they are to really tell a better story. And now with you know, bringing this back to mobile first and back to digital, how has, how has digital enabled this storytelling or what, what additional challenges has it caused now that the user can access them at, at a different you know, touch point? This is where we get, I'm going to get a little, slightly negative. <laughs> okay. I did a presentation for uh, one of the VPs for Brooks Brothers. He, he went down to Austin to have a presentation at a big event, and he needed to talk about how social media has changed Brooks Brothers. And he and I sat down and we looked at each other and I said, what the hell are you talking about? Like, it's just another vehicle. So mobile, for example, to me, is a vehicle that can or cannot be useful. It's all depending on what you fill it with and how you utilize it to strengthen your uh, communication or dialogue. So like everything that is the new things that slice bread with social media, for example, and influencer is the new way of communicating marketing. It's like, no, it's not. It's all about what you, how you want to utilize it as a brand. You have to make a stand for it first. Like, what is it going to do for me? Why am I going to invest in social or digital media versus traditional media versus print, coffee table books or whatever you choose to do? But like you have to decide what's the purpose or purpose of this vehicle and then you can get somewhere. 
And people get lost in that. Like, I love this. Now I'm going off on a Woody Allen moment, as we say, my wife and I <laughs> get off my sofa. Hey, why on earth would I want to put in a digital mirror in a store to be able to purchase from the mirror? I'm already in the goddamn store. There's <laughs> absolutely no point for me to like, okay, if I can put that mirror in the household, in people's homes, holy crap, I will be doing a phenomenal business. We're not there yet, but like literally that's what it is. So if you look at mobile, the, your phone right now, every digital experience should be, I love that. Go on American Airlines and at the bottom of your mobile, it says, would you prefer to see the full site, right? So the first thing that comes to mind is like, what? You're holding back information from me? So I have to go on to something else to see the full, like, why would you edit the content because it's mobile? Like, why, why do you think it's okay to limit to tell me half of a story on a mobile versus debate? Like, we have to stop thinking of digital or mobile revolution as a revolution. It's not. It's not a revolution. It's just another vehicle for us. So do you have any examples of how brands have used it where it, mobile has been useful? Yes. That you've seen? Okay. Black sheep cycling. Holy crap. Black sheep cycling. I look at them and I envy them. They're so brilliant. It's a three-year-old bicycle brand from Australia that sells bicycle jerseys, right? So you're looking at a, a pretty decent markup on a product that's completely oversaturated. Since Rafa came into the, oh yeah, Rafa is another great example. So I, I cycle, right? So 10 years ago, I used to buy I spent all my money on the bike. The jersey was the last thing on my mind. You spend 30 to 50 bucks tops on a jersey because you know you're going to sweat the jack out of that thing and you're going to change it out next year. Mm -hmm. The shorts or the jersey, right? Then Rafa shows up, tells a beautiful story in the digital environment only around why these jerseys are amazing and they charge me 190 bucks. And within less than a year and a half, I'm totally okay with spending 300% more on a jersey. Hmm. And Black Sheep Cycling have done it. They share their inspiration and design inspiration behind the collection before they even launch it. So now they have me all in a tizzy sitting waiting for December 12th when they're going to launch this limited additional collection of jerseys because they told me all this beautiful crap about why this is such a cool thing. And I just bought one in October. So I really have zero need for it. Like this is what mobile can do for me. Mobile can create an environment where you can touch me in more senses than anywhere else. Can you maybe explain what that experience might or is like? I don't know if I quite caught that for the mobile experience, what you know, Black Sheep Cycling has done to get you to be this engaged. So they use a written word, film, music, a little bit of private content mixed with a lot of visionary illustrative content. They're not showing a single product. Not, not one of the jerseys are on there. It's a lot of animated visual expressions that tells me about why they choose to design this collection and where did they find the inspiration to this collection that's going to show up in two weeks. And the same thing as, as the Nike's drop. So when I, when I look at this, I could never do that in a store, right? I could never do that in a book form. I, the, mobile is the only way I can actually mesmerize somebody in a way that only movies could do in the past i'll definitely link to both of these in the show notes and you said it was a rafa r-a-f-a r-a-p-h-a r-a-p-h-a okay great yeah i'll link to both of these examples into the show notes because i would love to 
you know, just from my own experience, go through the experience and, and see what they're doing and how they're doing it. Yeah. Oh my God. They're phenomenal. They, they are beyond everybody else. That's the thing. You, we have to start looking at the small brand. Like the other brand I like is I Love Ugly. I Love Ugly? Uh, yeah, I Love Ugly made uh, pretty much grew out of social media. And again, they have two stores, one in Sydney, one in LA. So again, it's a global. Every, every of these small brands are global. They're not American or anything else. They're almost like androgen in the sense that they don't have an they don't have an identity that, uh, or a nationality like every other brand, J. Crew, Brooks Brothers, IKEA. They all have a national identity to drive on. These new brands don't. They're global from the get go. You know, given what digital has done and in our conversation just about mobile, what are you thinking is going to be next for brand experience? You know, what's going to be the next disruptor that you've uh, experienced or that you're excited to see? I'm excited to see because I find there's a huge trend right now about bespoke. So, you know, the fear of missing out was one trend that kicked in together with the hipsters. So that became kind of like, oh, yeah, I got the latest and the coolest. And, and um, so I was first out. The, the other thing, too, is the fully customizable product. So in, instead of me buying, um, there's a brand called Asket, A-S-K-E-T, a Swedish brand. Again, they're tiny. These brands are probably not even a million dollar in turnover a year. But they have developed an apparel brand that I can choose between length as well as width. So it's not just XL, X, large, medium, small, but it's also the different long versus short. So I have options. So this is where I think the future lays in the brand experience is how far can you customize a product for the consumer from from the get-go. So it's not I have to buy something that everybody else gets. I, I think that era is all over. If you look at all the big luxury brands right now, they cut them back in production. They cut them back in distribution because nobody's really interested to have the same as everybody else. So I think those things are the next like we start seeing it in tailored clothing. There's a lot of digital experience that I can do through Andesheen and some other where I can literally give them my measurement and they can do customize design a suit for me. That's awesome. But I want that in everything. Eyewear, mobile phone, computers, everything. I want to be able to do this right from the get-go. We have a possibility of doing that through mobile that nobody else can touch upon in the retail space or in the brick and mortar. And then are you working on anything cool right now that you want everyone to know about? Yeah, I'm starting my own brand. Nice. Do you have a name for it or is it just a personal brand? And so here's my pitch. I'm creating a brand platform for other brands. I am the future department store. My job is to promote uh, leather and accessory artisans from across the world that are all too small to, go, to live in an environment as we have created it today. So these are unique, bespoke artisans from across the world, have clients and run their own businesses, but I'm going to create collaborative collections with them in limited runs that we're going to sell as the future digital department store. So Christopher, if we wanted to check that out or your workout, you know, where would you like us to go? I go to my Instagram by February 8th. We launched it February 8th. It's my wife's birthday. So um, we're launching it on that day. I can remember that day. So we did February 8th. February 8th. Great. And I'll make sure to reach out to you so that we can keep everyone up to date and we can keep that updated on the show notes page. And so um, making sure everyone checks that out because I definitely want to check out your, your personal platform. So Christopher, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you on. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad you were one of the listeners for me. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join us next week for a conversation with Billy Collins, CEO at Soapbox Soaps. And I'm always happy to be a resource in any way that I can. So visit EmergeMobileFirst.com to reach out to me directly or for additional insights, resources, and bonus tools that can help catapult your organization to the next level. Until next time, think mobile first.